I bring you greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ from your sister church, Westminster Presbyterian in Godfrey, where we seek, as you do here, to walk faithfully in obedience to the word of God. We need each other. I hope that you recognize that more and more and more. And so I bring you greetings uh, from the brothers and sisters there this morning. Imagine what the world would look like. Imagine what the church would look like if only for a moment the passage we're about to read was a reality in the church. Our conduct would be different. Our voice would be different. Our Instagram posts would be different. Sadly, often they're not, are they? Sadly, often, more than we have rubbed off on the world, the world has rubbed off on us. And we have become imitators of our culture, of our society, instead of of God himself. The passage was read for us, but would you read once again? I'm reading from the ESV. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children. And live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Our Father and our God, we come to you through the precious blood of Christ. We ask you to pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Lord, your Spirit resides and rests in us. We pray for its power to be manifest now. Not only in the preaching of the word through the unction of him who preaches, though sinful that he is, but in the receptiveness of our hearts, convictions of our hearts and our souls, to find our joy, our rest, in walking in obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you do your work in us as it is pleasing to you for your glory's sake, we pray. <clears throat> Amen. A couple years ago when my daughter was in uh, high school, the last couple proms or uh, homecoming she went to, she wore her grandmother's sari. So most of you may not know, but I, uh, I'm half Pakistani and half German Southern Illinois, something or another. And so my, my mom was a missionary in Pakistan, and after she passed away, uh, we had a number of her saris, which is a uh, 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 Pakistani Indian, uh, I'll give them some credit to, uh, uh, dress, which is very, very beautiful. But one of the things that accentuated uh, her uh, wearing the sari was one of the uh, young ladies in our church braided her hair. And it was just immaculately braided and it actually enhanced her beauty and she was just stunning. And I asked Grace, or I asked this young lady, how do you braid hair? I'm ignorant about it, and she, you know, she helped me understand, you know, so many strands of hair, or groups of hair, and you go in and out, and the like. Well, I'm going to shut up about what I know nothing about, but what's the point? The point is, as we look at this passage this morning, we see two commands, be imitators of God, and walk, and walk in love, intertwined always with the grace of God. We have to get that. 
Paul begins with grace, he gives a command, he goes to grace, he gives a command, goes back to grace. And there's this beautiful braid, if you would, that, that uh, Paul is helping us to weave in this passage. And I want you to notice that he begins with grace. He begins with grace, and it's in the word therefore. And whenever you do good Bible study, whenever you come to the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? And the therefore actually is helping us to begin this passage with grace. Just imagine if Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians church, and he began with, be imitators of God. I'm not sure about you, but I think I probably would have shut that right there and said, that's an impossibility. In fact, it's a damnable statement, isn't it? Without the grace of God, what a burden to place upon a person to be an imitator of God. It is a work salvation, which is unattainable because of the righteousness and the holiness of God. But Paul begins with grace. And so as we look at this verse in the ESV, it begins with, therefore, be imitators of God. So what does it therefore point us to? It points us to two things, actually. The therefore actually points us to what's happened in chapters 1 through 4. This general uh, theology that, uh, that Paul has laid down for four chapters in chapter 1, he talks, talks to us about who we are in Jesus Christ, our identity. You see the glorious uh, uh, doctrine of predestination and the grace and the mercy of God. Chapter 2, how do we get there? You're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And you, this is not of your own, but it's a gift of God. Faith as a gift of God, so that no man should boast. Then in chapters 3 and 4, it's the unity of the church. It's the gifting of the church with elders and, and teachers and all those other aspects. It's reconciliation through the blood, shed blood of Jesus Christ between God and man and between man and man. And it's all this theological foundation that he has laid. And it's only in chapter 5 that he begins by saying, Now, dependent upon what God has already done for you in Christ Jesus, who you are in Christ Jesus, be imitators of God. And he begins to step into this, this kind of a hinge passage where the rest of it is a lot more application, and he begins with these verses. But in the more immediate, the word therefore points us back to verse 32 of chapter 4. Read with me where it says in verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Now those are the commands, and here's the grace. As God in Christ has forgave you. So the therefore actually points to this last statement in which it says, As God in Christ has forgiven you. And so he begins with the grace of God. And it's only in that grace that we can ever, ever imagine, consider being able to be imitators of God. And yet he goes on to this very important command. This understanding of the word, therefore, enables us to hear the seemingly 
without grace, outrageous command. Be imitators of God. It's a big deal. But what separates us from the other religions is this. All other religions will say, be imitators of God. And maybe God, if he's in a good mood on the day that you come before the judgment throne, and if you've done enough, and if you have imitated him enough, maybe he'll let you into heaven. Not us. Ours is based on the grace of God in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And therefore we are called in the freedom, the rest, the joy of that grace to be challenged and commanded by the word of God to be imitators of God. The Greek word here uh, for the command, be imitators, is that word uh, from which we get our English word meaning to mimic. And it's used seven times in the New Testament. And every time it is used in a positive way. Most of the times when it's used in the New Testament, it's just used by the apostle, mostly by Paul, who says to the, his readers, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But here in Ephesians, the middle man is taken away. It's not be imitators of Pastor Adrian as he seeks to imitate Christ. Though I think Paul's fine in saying that as he helps his uh, readers. Here he just says, be imitators of God. The middleman's gone because the middlemen can make it fuzzy sometimes, can't they? Because we often are struggle ourselves in our own humanity to imitate God. Remember a number of years ago, probably in the 90s or so, but there was that big fad of those bracelets. What would Jesus do? WWJD. And everybody and their uncle wore a WWJD bracelet. And we even got excited when our favorite ball player had a WWJD bracelet on. And the problem with that fad was simply this. It's not enough to ask the question if you're not willing to live the answer. What would Jesus do? And before you knew it, we never actually looked at the answer. We never actually said, actually, what would Jesus do? And am I doing, walking in obedience, and imitating the Lord Jesus Christ? Like any fad of our culture, even within the church culture, it became just this synonymous thought of saying, eh, I go to church, I follow Christ. But Paul here is speaking not speculatively about what Jesus would do in the unknown realities of life, right? Because there are many unknown realities of life that we wrestle with every day. What would Jesus do with the Black Lives Matter movement? What would Jesus do in da, 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 right? Those are the unknowns that we have. And so we jump straight to those. Paul's not saying that. Paul's not saying, think about what Jesus might do in certain issues uh, surrounding modern day life. Now what Paul is actually saying is, don't be imitators in what you don't know and how it might happen. Be imitators in what you do know. So that what you don't know, because you're imitating in what you do know, you're more likely to walk in faithful obedience 
to the living God. In fact, if believers did imitate what they know about God, they wouldn't really have to worry about the things that they don't know what scripture might speak to. Because they would be in such a place in their relationship and walk with God that they would be in in tune with the Holy Spirit's leading. They would be saturated with the word of God. And they would be known as men and women who walk with God. Maybe the better question for believers to begin with is not what would Jesus do, but what has Jesus done? And am I imitating that? So naturally, the question that arises is, what is Paul calling us to when he commands us to be imitators of God? We're called to do what God does. And we're called not to do what God doesn't do. Sins of omission and commission. We're called to live in holiness and righteousness in our thoughts, in our attitudes, and in our actions. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 The Apostle Peter, quoting Leviticus, says, Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. God's people throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament have been called to live holy lives simply on the basis that God is holy himself and therefore his people ought to be holy as well. But what are the areas in our life? We're in the middle of this book of Ephesians and that began by telling us who we are already in Christ. If you're in Christ, go to Ephesians chapter 1 and and you could probably bathe in that for a year and still not understand the fullness of all that is yours in Christ Jesus. We've been told how we've got there by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. We've been saved. We've been focusing on obedience. So holiness and righteousness in our attitude and our thoughts towards things and towards people. But not only in our attitudes and our thoughts, but in our conduct, in our actions, in our words, be they spoken, and in our modern day written with such haste that we often don't think about what we're saying and what they reflect about the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called to be holy and righteous in the desires of our hearts. The longings that often drive us should be holy as God is holy. We are to be imitators of God. Where? We're to be holy and righteous in our relationships, in our interpersonal lives, in our churches, in the world, in our neighborhood, with our neighbors who we don't necessarily get along with. I had an unfortunate, this confession time, uh, uh, interaction with my neighbor a number of years ago. He had built a big garage and all the water from his garage spilled into our yard and filled our yard. And so he tried to rectify it by putting in some drainage ditches which created a lot more mud. Well, 
I was upset. And we didn't, I didn't talk to him for quite a while. Till one day when I was mowing my lawn a number of months later, as the Holy Spirit does, with deep conviction, I was told to go and ask his forgiveness. And it was sad to have to ask my neighbor's forgiveness. Who knows that I'm a pastor? And so he told me so. Oh, I expected better of you. I said, you're right. Absolutely. But not because I'm a pastor. It's even worse than that. It's not because of my role. It's because of my person in Jesus Christ. You should expect that. And that's why I'm here. Because I need to ask your forgiveness. It was a challenging thing to do, but a freeing thing to do. And so here we're called to be imitators of God. Our attitudes are to imitate God. If we look at a cursory reading of chapter 4, verse 1 begins in similar manner. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Then we're called to walk in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 4, which is connected by the therefore, in all humility, in all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That's the heart of God, isn't it? God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love. Brothers and sisters, is that a characteristic of your life? That you're patient? You're humble? You're gentle? You bear with one another. Sadly, when we don't get along in churches, there's just another uh, church we can quickly jump to. In our Sunday school class this morning, uh, we were talking exactly about that, how, how the early church, there was, you know, on our church on Del Mar, uh, within uh, two miles, there are six churches. Six churches, just in a two-mile stretch on one road. We're just sitting on top of each other. It's easy to just go and not study the peace and purity of the church. It's easier to run away. But when you run away, you run away with the non-Christian, Christ-like attitude to another church. It's harder to stay. It's harder to be humble. It's harder to be gracious. It's harder to bear with one another. It's hard to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We're to be that way in our roles as elders and teachers. We're to be that way to imitate Christ in the teaching, both in our message, but also in our manner. And there's so many times as Christians, we, we have a very strong message, but our mannerisms are nothing like Christ. When I was in campus ministry at Illinois State University, <coughs> we used to have quad preachers. If you never come across a quad preacher, you haven't lived. These guys really are something to watch. Sadly, sadly, they're kind of, uh, uh, no, I should be gracious. I'm not about to do something I shouldn't have said. But I remember watching this quad preacher, and he was preaching and uh, he was, they were carrying around signs, and it said, the wages of sin is death. 
right? That's very biblical. But the rest of it wasn't written, the gift of God is eternal life. And out of that verse, he had highlighted the word AIDS. And he was yelling at people as they crossed the quad. And, uh, and this, again, is to my shame. I watched as this young girl, I remember she was wearing overalls, and uh, uh, she had colored her hair with, uh, I think, pink and other colors, and she walked right up to her, and she says, why don't you teach like Jesus taught, in parables that we can connect with and whatnot? And he goes, you know nothing. You're simply a whore. And there was words of God coming forth from his mouth. And as I walked away to my own grief, I thought, what if I had gone and said, you may speak this way, but Jesus would never, ever, ever have treated a woman with such indignity as you did that and you proclaim something that you're not willing to live in the manner in which you speak with others in grace and kindness. What about you? Do you find yourself spouting lots of truth with little grace? Jesus is full of grace and full of truth, and it's a razor's edge, isn't it? There's never too much, never completely great uh, truth without grace he often will lead with one and then the other but it's always perfect sometimes we can be profoundly truthful but very hateful and other times we can be mushy loving and never speak a word of truth but jesus is full of grace and truth and that's a fine razor's edge that we need to hone in our own walk with God. So where does God want you to imitate him where you might not be imitating him? It might be in an area of your life that's private. It might be in an area of your life that's very public. It might be in an area of your life in which you've exposed it to the rest of the world and cannot take it back. It might be in your marriage or with your children. If you want to know, ask your wife or husband. Well, the wives will tell you, the husband, because they know the question's going to come back. But ask them, in all seriousness, is there an area of my life that doesn't reflect the Lord Jesus Christ? You're the one who loves me. And then wait and listen for an answer. Be imitators of God. And then notice Paul goes straight into grace as beloved children. He returns directly to grace. Be imitators of God. And, but do it so because you already are beloved children. Not to become beloved children. Not to, I will love you more if you're an imitator of God. Christ has loved you as much as he could ever love anybody. 
You are safe and you are secure in that love. It is in that love that you can dare to be an imitator of God. And the problem might be here. Now, we may not be imitators of God because we truly don't believe that we're beloved children. Because I don't know I'm a beloved children, I'm on my own. And so I end up living life on my terms and speaking to people the way I want them to respond to me. But when we know who we are in Christ Jesus, we are free to be imitators of God. And we're free when we're not to seek forgiveness, to seek reconciliation, so that we might even more so become imitators of God. Once again, Paul points to mercy store. In other words, uh, not to what we do, but to what God has graciously done for us and who we are already in Christ Jesus. If there's anyone here who is not in Christ Jesus, then to hear those words be imitators of God makes absolutely no sense. In fact, it's a damnable reality because if you try to earn your way to heaven, you're never going to get there. It is because Christ has already accomplished that upon the cross. And there are people who seek to try in their own strength to be imitators of God, but not as dearly loved children. See, some, some of us hear the fact, be imitators of God, and we become legalists. We try in our own strength to please and honor God, which is a good thing, but we do so in the, the motives of our mind because that's the command we hear, be imitators of God. And then when we don't, we hurt ourselves. You know, I ask God's forgiveness, do better. Come on, you idiot. Why can't you? As a young man, as a teenage boy, that was a lot of my refrains. I wanted to be, but I wasn't necessarily relying on grace. And so I often would find myself beating myself up. And some of you here might be beating yourselves up. But Christ has already taken that punishment. You can stop flailing on yourself and go to the cross and receive forgiveness and grace. You are a beloved child of God. See, those words are as inerrant as the imitators of God. But if we don't hear those two things together, we will never be what God is calling us to be in this passage. And so we need to rest in the assurance and the grace and the knowledge that we are truly, truly, truly loved of God. And some of you struggle with that. And some of you need help with that. And sometimes the help that you need comes from your own story and unraveling it. Because some of us know what those words say, but we never heard them from those who should have loved us but never did. And so therefore, we were never truly beloved children. We were never truly told that we were beloved children. 
And as we come to Christ, we often interpose over our relationship with God, our relationship with parents. Christian parents know that your children listen to what you say. And the command to honor your father and your mother comes with a promise because in so many ways we play that intermediate role that draws them or takes them away from Jesus Christ. And we need to be people who affirm in our children who they are in Christ and, and who we know them to be and how we loved, loved them as well. So they will know both of those things. Paul walks away and he goes from grace and brings the next braid, if you would, of command. Walk in love. And notice he proceeds from one command to another with grace as the intermediate. And I'm sure many of you have heard the, people, uh, the phrase, hurt people hurt people. Now that's true at times. But because of the redeeming work of Christ, and that's not always true. I can bear testament to that because of Christ's work. But what Paul is saying is also, beloved people love people. If you know you're loved by Christ, you're actually free to love others. If you don't know that you're loved by Christ, then you'll never actually walk in love. Love in a manner as you have already been loved by God. So as we walk in love, we walk in light of what God has already done to us. And in this walking in love, Paul quickly goes back straight to grace, doesn't he? Walk in love as you have been loved in Christ Jesus. And Christ gave himself up for us and so the example is present for us for God so loved the world not in extent but by means this is the way in which God showed his love that while we were yet sinners Christ died and so we're called to walk in love as dearly loved children again so again the command says walk in love but how can we ever walk in love unless we know that we are loved by God? And so Paul comes back with grace. And then notice how he wraps all of this, this up in the final part of this verse. He says this, <clears throat> Walk in love just as Christ has loved us and given himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. There's a glorious aroma that comes from this passage where grace and command, command obeyed in grace, all comes together. And it comes together in the church. And as it does, as Christ's fragrant aroma of his sacrifice goes up to God, so does ours. What does your church smell like? Does it smell like a fragrant aroma to God? Because 
through grace, you're seeking to imitate God in the relationships here. And the fragrance is lifted up to God as a glorious aroma of sacrifice. Where you walk together in love, not in the basis of how our culture defines that reality, but simply because you have been loved by God and because Christ gave himself up for us, you can give up yourself for another. How different would the church look? How absolutely astounding would it be to the world outside to recognize and to see that reality in the church? In the Old Testament, God asked the priest to offer a sacrifice and it came up to him as an aroma. In the New Testament, God did as he called the priest to do and offered Christ as a fragrant aroma. And now we're called to be imitators of God and walk in love and mimicking Christ in his sacrificial love. And as we do that, there's a fragrant aroma that rises to God as his people live out the truth of his word in being imitators of God as dearly loved children walking in love as we've been loved by Christ let's pray our father and our God we come before your throne of grace and we think about what our church, what our families, what our neighborhoods would be like. And just imagining that fragrant aroma. We've all passed places where we know there is some succulent food being cooked because we can smell it. I wonder how many people, Father, would be drawn to you through the fragrant aroma of your children. Living out these commands in grace, with grace as their base, in obedience. I wonder how many people might walk into this church and say, this is where I want to be. And Father, we pray that our obedience to you based on the grace that you have granted us, would truly be a fragrant aroma, that it would be a place of joy in this body here, that it would transform this church. Now, Father, as many churches are walking away to crusades other than Christ, many people feel like their church has left them. I pray, as I do for our own church, that this church would be a place of refuge for refugees. Not who are seeking to leave the church, but whose church has left them for cultural realities instead of faithfulness to Christ. And as they walk in these doors, may they smell that aroma. And may it draw them to you, Lord Jesus Christ, as your grace has lived out in each one. And we pray this in Jesus' name.
precious name.